they kept me overnight and they'd gone up the next day and they said I was okay to go it could just be a one-off but if you get any nosebleeds again come back in I did get nosebleeds so I went back in again they were very low and they said to me um you could you know we're going to put you on steroids because they're so low that you could die with a bleed into the head while you're sleeping Welcome ladies and gentlemen, I'm your host Matt Brown and you're listening to the Podcast. Each episode we'll have a different guest come on and talk about when life hands you an L, is it really a loss or is it something else? Because not every L is a loss. So sit back, relax or do whatever you guys do to get comfortable as we get into this. Let's go! Hi, welcome to another episode of Every L Podcast, where every L is not a loss, and we discuss it at length around a different topic each episode. Today, I have a fantastic person that's joining me. Now, I don't know why I'm hesitant of saying that, because every guest I've got is amazing and fantastic, otherwise they wouldn't be on here with me. But this person, for me, has just achieved something, not alone, obviously, with the support of others, but I've achieved greatness in a way that a lot of us may have thought, how can I change the narrative how can I do something that for so many years before me just was never done and this person is called Karen I will let her go on and explain a little bit more information about herself but she is a co-director of a football club called Lewis FC and they are doing amazing things on the pitch and off the pitch if you ever wonder why or if you never noticed really that men get paid a scenes amount of money in football, whether it be in the top tier or slightly lower, but the females don't get paid as much. Karen and the people that she surrounds herself with have challenged the narrative and made positive change towards that. And just, I didn't know anything about them until I, I crossed paths with them. And then looking into what they've achieved is, is, is mind boggling, especially the fact that it's had a wider impact on other nations and other football teams also looking at how they run the situation and improving it because let's be honest and this is something I pulled off a bit of content they had which says how do you tell your daughter she's worth less than your son but before I go on let me let Karen introduce herself further explain more about Lewis FC and what she does there and then we'll go into her L's because she so kindly decided that she's going to come on here share a couple of her L's that she's endured in life and talk about the thought process, and then we go into meat and bones and find out what she got from them. So, Karen. Thank you, Matt. That was such a cool introduction. I don't think I can live up to it, but I'll, I'll do my best. Um, yeah, I'm Karen. I'm a, an elected director at Lewis Football Club, and we believe that everyone is equal. What can I say? No one should be discriminated against for any kind of inherent characteristic that they've got. And the way that the inequality manifests in football quite badly and something that, you know, wasn't, I don't know, didn't seem to be very um, conscious before Lewis FC drew attention to it back in July 2017 is gender inequality in that women uh, earn much less than men, uh, their, their male counterparts in football. The FA Cup prize fund, for example, um, is very dis- gender discriminatory and 
everything from which pitches you play on if you're a man or a woman, what kind of access you've got to medical attention and resources, um, how you're treated when you travel, and um, just at how much sponsor, you know, sponsorship product you get. Everything seems to be connected to gender in football, and everything tells your daughter that she is worth less than your son. And the reason it matters so much in football is that football is the most popular sport in the world and has incredible influence over hearts and minds, and in particular, the hearts and minds of men. And men have the power to make change in terms of gender equality. So football is a great place to campaign right, for gender equality because you're having the conversations with the people that matter and you're drawing the matter to the attention of the people that can do something about it. Um, so, I, yeah, I, I love being um, a co-director at the, the first club in the world to pay and value the women the same as the men. Um, and, you know, and I love the campaigning that we do using football as a vehicle for social change. And I, I was saying to you, Matt, before we um, before we pressed record, that I, I feel very privileged, you know, to do what I do and act as a custodian for, for this football club. And I think it's amazing, I, even if you are privileged. And I think a lot of us are in a privileged position, but it's what we do with that position that we're placed in. And I think the fact that you're able to help those that wish they could do what you're doing, but would have to be in your position to do it, you're saying, okay, cool, you're not in my position, but I am, and I'm doing it. So I think it's a beautiful a, a beautiful situation that you're placed in and that you are doing a great work altogether and people are benefiting from it beyond any comprehension that you and I will ever have. I think the, the thing about um, the thing about fame and fortune in football is that if you have if you only give that to men, then you make not just men but also women see themselves as less um, you know inferior really inferior to men like we're not worth we're not worth it we we don't it, it just feeds into stereotypes that we start taking on board and that we think you know are true about ourselves when they're not and uh, the the thing about me is that I'm a total imposter right in football Matt because a I'm a woman right so I know that but b I'm a woman that never liked football before Lewis FC's equality campaign and I came into it kind of green um not knowing when Arsenal won the cup or who did what in 1970, whatever, right? Which is conversations that other board directors have amongst themselves at Lewis FC, and I don't really know what they're talking about. I don't share that cultural history as a result of being um, female um, and never having been encouraged to watch or play football at school, partly as a result of the 50-year ban, of course, on women playing football in this country and, I might add, in the major footballing countries around the world. Look at Brazil, Germany, Spain, wherever you want to look, there were similar bans in place on women playing football because they were trying to re-establish gender norms after the war. But anyway, um, because of because of all that exclusion, I followed a diff different, you know, different career paths and had different experiences in my life, which I bring to the board through my imposterness. Um, by the way, I think imposterness is great, right? I don't have <laughs> all this all this stuff about an imposter syndrome. It's not a syndrome. I am an imposter and it's a good thing, right? So um, 
I bring all that life experience to the board and um, I feel valued because of it and I definitely value myself because of it because I can see what I'm doing in in creating that new market for women's football bringing women into the ground women that were previously unwelcome without knowing it right so like you know thinking about having Prosecco on tap thinking about having breastfeeding signs up where you can breastfeed if you want to um that's not that normal for any other football ground, right? But we're just sending out signals all the time because you have to send out those signals if you're going to really, it's not just, as we were saying, it's not just ticking a box. This is about actually including people. This is about thinking about people and what might make them feel this is their home too uh, and not just the home of the other 50% or whatever of the population. And a place where we, you know, we really do, yeah, Try and I suppose set an example sounds a bit po-faced, but we just try and be uh, welcoming to everybody. Like the other day, I'll be honest with you, that I was watching a men's match at the Dripping Pan, right? That's our ground, and our men have got a campaign at the moment called hashtag Call Him Out, where they will call out any kind of misogyny or sexist language that they're using themselves, nice. or uh, if they hear anything. But anyway, because that was on our minds. Call him out is on our minds all the time and sort of bystander training we've done and all of that. I was at the ground and this these two away fans were just chatting and I said hello and um they said to me, oh, when is when is this particular player gonna get up and, and play then? And I said, Oh, I, I think he's injured at the moment. This is one of our players. And they said, He's gay, isn't he? Look at his eyebrows. And I was really flummoxed. I was like, What's that got to do? Ha- hang on, hang on. Can yeah. we just unpack that? Because I, I was just going to walk past them, right? But now I had to have a conversation because I couldn't let that go. Yeah. I said, what do you mean, A, what do you mean his eyebrows? And B, what would be the problem if he was gay? I, I don't understand any of this. And so they were like, I was being trying to keep friendly because this is the thing that we, that I, well, I definitely do is have dialogue have conversations let people say what they want to say and then just question it right so I said you know what do you mean and they said well he's got these because what he's got he's got these shaved bits of eyebrows right and they were saying anyone that goes to those lengths to look like that has got to be gay because he's taking such a big making such an effort with his eyebrows and I said well a right I'm glad he's making an effort if he wants to that's a nice thing to do for yourself and B, if he is gay, what is your problem with it? And they were like, um, actually, I know for a fact that, that that particular footballer isn't gay. I've been out to dinner with him and his girlfriend, right? But anyway, that's not the point. So I says, you know, what what is your problem with that? Well, you know, you know, it was all that kind of noises and stuff. And I just said, look, it, it, no wonder it's difficult for footballers to come out as gay. It, you know, the point is, have you actually seen your own eyebrows? No, you haven't seen your own eyebrows because you can't see your eyebrows. And there's a lot of things about ourselves that we can't see and we need to actually look at before we comment on other people. You know, I had a really great conversation in the end, but I wasn't going to let that go because if you just let those things go, it they become normalised. They become accepted and they become like part of the scenario. And that's why we all we all sort of have to be on the alert a bit, I feel, we all have to be aware of campaigns like Call Him Out and be aware of being responsible for the atmosphere that we're creating, right? Wherever we are, whether it's at a foot, 
football mirrors life, football reflects society, they go both ways. I always feel if we can do it at our football club, then we can do it outside of our football club as well. Indeed. Right? And we can influence. So so it's it's just um yeah, it's just it's like create, creating our own I'm not saying that you know, we have rude chants, we have people and certainly they're not homophobic chants and certainly they're not racist chants and certainly they're not sexist chants, but there will be a lot of swearing and stuff and we still have all of that. But it, so it's real, you know, it's an authentic place to be and people are still letting letting off being tribal, being passionate, right? That's all right. But what we don't want to do is make anyone else unwelcome. That's all, you know. Football's a very passionate sport. You, you'll see guys, girls get emotional over it and it, it it's because it's the most popular sport in the world. But I think you did an amazing job and you guys are setting the standards, doing what, you want, um, doing what you're doing because rather than sort of say, let me rely on someone else to do it. You're doing what you think should be done right and letting people follow suit. So I think that's, I think that's amazing. It, also, I'll say one more thing though, Matt. We're 100% community owned. Wow. Right? So when you feel that you own the football club, it's not just me. Like there's over 2,000 owners in 38 countries now around the world that own Lewis FC. It's crazy, right? That's incredible. Well done. And that's what sets our agenda. We're not trying to create a profit for private shareholders. We're trying to create value for the community that owns us. Yeah. And when you're trying to do that, your mind is oriented in a different way. Yeah. It's, it's just, it just is. It's a, it's a, we've got a different basis of, upon which we work. And so all the footballers own the club as well, right? As part of their contract, they have to buy an ownership of Lewis FC. Fantastic. Which, by the way, is only 50 quid a year, right? In case anyone listening wants to buy one, come and join us. Um, it's amazing. We're a movement, really. Um so I feel different. If I'm at that football club, people won't be talking like that in my front room, so they won't be talking like that at my football club. Yeah, I think that's amazing. And I will put um, the link in the description. So if people do want to get involved and help Lewis out, then I'm sure it will be worth worth doing. What I'm going to do, let's go on to the first L and that you'd like to discuss, and it's getting a life-threatening illness. Mm-hmm. Not going to lie, did kind of make me wonder what is this oh my gosh i feel intrusive no she provided a question what she's going to talk oh, about fine, yeah. let's go into it so from the top when, when did you get diagnosed when did you know something wasn't right so we're talking so at the moment i am 54 years old and we're talking about something that happened when i was 27 years old 28 27 God, 1996 anyway and um what happened there was I, okay, so I was, my previous professions have been fashion modeling and counseling. And at this point in my life, I had, was just finishing my training of counseling. And I'd done a training for three years in person-centered counseling. And I'd paid for that with the fashion modeling. And, um, and I had this funny life, had this funny life where I was kind of, I'd I'd be all you know made up for a show or something 6am in the morning doing catwalk and then I'd have to in the afternoon get back to wherever I had to be 
to counsel people. And sometimes I'd like forget my nails or something. I'd still have these massive gold nails <laughs> on or something. You're supposed to, or I tr- would try to be fairly neutral, you know, and I was counseling people. So I, ha- I had this funny life and it was interesting, And but I was really working hard. So I would be, you know, I could be getting up very early. I could be counseling very late because people often wanted counseling after work. And um, what I was doing, okay, okay. before I explain how this happened, I'll I'll answer your question properly. I noticed I had a rash uh, all over my legs and I would bruise very easily. And sometimes I'd be counseling and my nose would just start to bleed. Um, And when the rash just didn't start to go away, I went to the doctors and said, I've got all these red dots all over my skin and I keep bleeding what's going on and they di- diagnosed me with something called idio oh here we go idiopathic thrombocytopenia oh, wow itp for short right what it means idio means that they don't know what it's caused by so idio and then thrombocytopenia means shortage of blood platelets which is a shortage of the platelets which clot clot your blood they're responsible for clotting and uh, mine were very very low and we didn't know why and when your blood isn't clotting, you bleed easily. So no wonder I would, um, you know, just just knock myself and have a big bruise, or or my nose would spontaneously bleed, or um, or I'd get all these sort of blood blisters in my mouth. And I, I hadn't understood why, but they said it's potentially very serious. And your plate, your platelets are going up. They were going up. They kept me overnight, and they'd gone up the next day. And they said I was okay to go. It could just be a one-off. But if you get any nosebleeds again, come back in. I did get nosebleeds, so I went back in. Again, they were very low. And they said to me, um, you could, you know, we're going to put you on steroids because they're so low that you could die with a bleed into the head while you're sleeping. Oh, my gosh. So I was really rocked, you know, really rocked by that information. And um, I, I said, OK, I'll do anything. You know, of course, I'll go on steroids. So I went on these steroids and um, they didn't have much effect, but they put me on high dose. So they had to wean me off. So I was on those for, for a couple of months. And um, basically, during that time, they were checking my blood count three times a week. And when it was low, they'd just keep me in hospital until it'd gone up again. And my count seemed to go up and down and nobody knew why. So this brings me to the bit about the working patterns. And at that time, you know, I was working strange hours and I had in my bag, um, do you know tahini? No, not for me. Tahini is like a sesame paste. It's like peanut butter, but it's sesame. Okay, no, I might have to check it out though. Yeah, no, it's quite nice. They put it in falafel and stuff like that. And I used to just have it in my bag because I thought it was healthy, like protein. And I just used to eat some of it either in between meals or, you know, late at night as a, as a kind of snack to keep me going. Yeah. Um, and the reason I say this is because I went to see an alternative doctor who said to me, um, keep a food diary. So I kept a food diary and... I noticed that whenever I had eaten tahini, my platelets at the hospital were low. 
Um, but it took me a few months to notice this. So I had a few months of being really, really scared, so scared, really, really scared, thinking that I could die when I went to sleep. So I wasn't really sleeping much. Um, they told me, you know, don't do anything like horse riding. Not that I did do horse riding, but anything that could, you could fall. Yeah. That, again, that would be a problem and um, or hit your head. So carried on working, didn't sleep very much. The whole thing took about eight to nine months to um, to get to get through. In the end, when I noticed this correlation between tahini eating and platelet lowering, the consultant at the hospital said to me, let's challenge your body, bring in the jar. So I brought in the jar of tahini and I ate like a third of it, just ate loads of it. And my platelets were the same. Then three hours later, they'd plummeted. And um, she was like, this is amazing. We had no idea that food could affect platelets, right? So they wrote the case up in the Lancet and the British Medical Journal, because apparently a lot of children get this illness. And um, they, with my blood, they could trace the course of the antibodies by putting tahini in a test tube with my blood and seeing you know, what happened. And so it was helpful, which is great. Um, but what it, well, you know, that, that particular year I was going to get married and I couldn't get married because, you know, there was this threat that I would die. So um, also I was on the verge of having my spleen out. That's another thing. I had the vaccinations to have my spleen out because the spleen is where a lot of blood is stored in the body. And they thought that if they took that out, it would help. But the day I went in to have my spleen out, my platelets were high at that point we didn't know it was because I hadn't eaten tahini right we didn't know what was causing it but um but they sent me home because they didn't want to take out a healthy spleen so I was lucky still got my spleen but um yeah the whole thing was really really scary but what what I haven't yet revealed (laughs) mentioned is that I I chant I'm I'm a Buddhist I'm a practicing Buddhist and I had been I have been practicing Buddhism since 1991 and it's a whole learning curve still right years and years later but one thing that Buddhists I know say to each other and like I can't quite get their map but you're going to love this you say you've got a problem or something wrong something terrible's happening and they say huh congratulations and you're like what? Don't tell me congratulations. That's not very compassionate, right? This I'm in a really bad state. And I had this happen to me when I had ITP. I'd 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 sort of you know see some Buddhist and they go, oh, you're ill, great, that's great. And I'd be like, What are you you guys living in a topsy-turvy land or something? <laughs> this is not great. This is terrible. This is like I could lose my life. And they're like, just chant, just chant. And I did chant. I chanted a lot in that time. And what I came to understand through this illness was that, you know, if, if you, you, in order to create meaning, you have to kind of make stories about things. And the story I told myself was that if I, what I wasn't doing at the time of my illness was taking care of myself very well as a young woman. I was eating whenever I could. I was sleeping whenever I could. There was no regularity to it. I was working whenever anyone asked me to. Um, I was not factoring in any time to rest or sit down and have a meal. I wasn't 
you know, I was putting myself last all the time. I, I had to put money first, but not to the extent that I was. And I had, you know, my job as a counsellor was to put other people first. But, you, you know, if you're going to give to people and really be there for them and be available, you have to have your own bucket full first, you know, and make sure that you're okay. Well, you can't pour from empty glass. Exactly that, right? And that's what I had been doing. So it taught me a really valuable lesson. It taught me that you you cannot give your all to others. You have to give to yourself as well as others. These have to be things that happen simultaneously. Um, otherwise, you become empty and ill. Um, and I think it's a really great lesson for women and young women in particular because there is a narrative in our society that tells women they're there to care for others and not to look after themselves. So it was a it was a great lesson, that, that illness. I wouldn't wish it on anyone. I wouldn't want to have it again. But um, it was the scariest time in my life. But I vowed that I would take care of myself and, um, you know, not to stop me take, looking after others, but I would have to put myself first more often. That's what it taught me. And I think that is very, that is very important. I've, I've been a long believer of the phrase, if you don't make time for your wellness, you'll be forced to make time for your illness. And it's, it's you know, when you look at people who have run themselves into the ground, you can see how it correlates with, you just had a hectic lifestyle. Your body has been screaming out for you to pump the brakes and you've just gone, nope. And and eventually it's when, you know what, if you ain't going to do it, something else is going to take over. Yeah. And that's when it's happened. And thankfully it's only an illness. I say only because obviously the other side of it could be you ain't here no more. But it was it was only an illness where you could then play around, get a food diary, check, you know, yeah. try different patterns out to find out what it was before next thing you know, you're not here anymore. It's like, oh my gosh, I didn't know. And it's important to get checked out. It's, I think it's what you said about doing for others is important. And I, I, I should <laughs> I should take my own advice because I, here I am doing all this stuff I'm doing yeah. um, and something's going to break at some point. But I know I'm having an early night tonight. So that's different to normal nights. And that's because I know I can feel my body telling me you're in pain because I need to rest. And I'm not upset by it. I, I accept it. I'm just saying, hold out for a little bit longer. Let me just get a couple of things done and we can cruise. I just need to get over this mountain. But some people don't even feel that. All they do is pop pills just to keep going at the high rate of pace they're going and don't understand the warning signs. And it could be detrimental. When you was going through your your situation where you was early starts, eating when you can, doing your counselling, did you have any support around you? I know you touched it saying that you're practising um, Buddhist. Were they your support or did you have any other friends or family members that were able to support you during that time? Uh, that's a really good question because um, I, I'll never stop remembering and being grateful for my dad's support at that time. He um, drive, rides a motorbike. He doesn't have a car. And he came uh, with me to the hospital to every... Now, I said I was going three times a week. Yeah. He basically came on his motorbike and either I would get on the back and we'd ride to St. Mary's 
or we'd get off to, he'd just park at my house and we'd go to the tube station get off at Paddington and go to St Mary's three times a week he just came to every single appointment with me and I you know I, I was it gave us a we became close during that time and we had the same routine for all of these appointments and um just knew how much he cared and it you know I'll never ever forget that so that was amazing I also had because I I was a counsellor I had two amazing supervisors so when you're counselling or you're a therapist you have supervision which means that uh anything that was triggered for you in the session with the client or if you're stuck in any way on how to proceed um if there's an ethical question you can chat it over with your supervisor and um you know at that time i think yeah i was already working for polygram records so uh when i qualified in fact just before i qualified i got this amazing job where i was uh a counsellor for Polygram Records, now called Universal. So all the different record companies and also the people that packed the CDs on the factory floor, all the people that uh, were in HR and all the tech jobs there, um, I managed the counselling service for them internally. So um, I would go I would go around to the different record companies and the different places and explain the confidentiality of the counselling service and how they could access it and what it could address, and how many free sessions they could get. And um, for that, I was very jammy because counsellors don't usually get paid very much, but um, because I was a manager at Polygram, I got paid the same as any other manager, and um, I got given really good supervision. So, you know, top-class supervision in London, and um, I had also my own personal supervisor. So I had a lot of support there as well. Fantastic. Did did you handle it in an unhealthy way? Like, did you, when you first received the news, did you react negatively or was it just, okay, yeah, let me just get my chance on. Let me just accept it. I, I handled it. I was very scared. I was, I was very scared about what, what that meant. Um, you know, how could you one minute feel like you were a healthy young person and then an hour later be told, actually, you could be dead, <laughs> you know, you could die. And if you go to sleep, you can die. That must have been terrifying. I was, I was terrified. And I didn't know, I didn't have, I didn't feel equipped to deal with it. Like it was too much. Um, but when you, I didn't know, you know, there was, I didn't know how to deal with it apart from, I cried, um, I was scared and sad. Um, with the steroids, I had loads of side effects, so I didn't know what was me and what, you know, what was the effect of the drugs. Um, yeah, I, I don't know that I handled it well or badly I I know that I had to handle it so I did work helped going to work helped a lot because I felt there that you know I could get out of myself and just concentrate on everybody else um but yeah I mean it was um 
it was very difficult. I couldn't, what was difficult as well was other people's reactions, you know, because once people know, well, that's all they want to talk about. And actually, when you've got the illness, you don't want to talk about it because it's always in your mind. You you want to break from it. So you, you prefer it if, other, if you can just talk about normal things. But everyone wanted to know everything. So it was, that was tricky as well. Because my thought is, if I've been told this information, or actually, was you living on your own or was you living with your folks at the time? I was living with my boyfriend. We were supposed to get married, but but we didn't. So in that situation, I'm thinking, right, I've just been told this news. Me, I'm still trying to process this information. And when I say the word process, just so people understand, because I like the analogies, I always think of a sugar cube. If something's sprinkling like, you know, a teaspoon of sugar, it dissolves pretty quickly. If it's if it's a cube, you've got to do a lot of stirring on that before it starts to dissolve. <laughs> and that's when someone gives me heavy information, I think of a, a, <laughs> a sugar cube and I'm like, okay. oh gosh, this is going to take a while to sink in. How are you then able to, while you're processing it, how do you then share this information with your fian- then fiance? How was you able to then share that information with your parents? Like, I, I, my head cannot fathom how I'm going to say to my family, yeah, I am bleeding. And if I sleep, I, that could be my last night. Like for me, that is uh, the emoji with your head exploding. I, I can't understand because for you to process it as an individual is one thing, but then to tell them and potentially put that that burden on them yeah, it's hard. But then if you didn't do it, they would feel some sort of way because you haven't told them about the struggles you're going through, if that makes sense. Mm. Uh, the bit about, you know, them telling me that you could have a bleed in the head. I don't know that I told, it's quite a long time ago. I, I don't think I told my mum and dad that immediately. Um, I think I told my partner immediately because he might have to do something right in the bed. I don't know if I was asleep. So I had to tell him. I, I, I remember crying and I remember him. Um, he looked like like death. He looked so shocked and sad. Um, but, you know, this is reality sometimes. You, you just have to carry on and, and um, I, don't, I don't know, breathe. You know, sometimes you just have to breathe because um, there's a there's a sort of process, isn't there, of grief, you know, what you thought you were going to have and now what you do have, you have to sort of mourn the idea that you're not going to have that anymore, but you're going to have something different um, and you don't really know what it is. So, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think also in my... The way that I am, I can compartmentalize things. So I can put something in a box in my head and then put put another thing in another box so I can sort of make a time when I'm going to grieve or make time to be scared. And the rest of the time, as long as I can distract myself, decide I'm just going to work. I'm just going to, you know, go swimming or something that I'm going to do. So I think that's that's one way I looked at it. But, yeah, the, the people around me, um they were great really it was my aunt that really helped me actually she said I said to her I've got this food diary and I I think it could be tahini I know this sounds completely mad but um I think it could be 
and she said because I knew she's she happened to be a nutritionist person and she said it could be because she said I know that the liver she says something weird like I know the liver finds it hard to deal with nuts and seeds or something so and that's where a lot of blood is now she made some weird connection and that but that was enough for me that was all the positive affirmation I needed I thought right that's got to be it and I remember the feeling of thinking that I had found a cause was such a relief so I was so happy I just felt I landed I've got my life back again I can have children one day I can get married you know I can carry on with my work and I've got my life back it just was the best feeling in the world yeah I'm so happy for you to have that moment because I can only imagine ravaged with emotions and everything you're going through, not seeing the light at the end of the tunnel must have been very bleak. Um, but then obviously to see, to, to hold on, to hang on and to have that is amazing. Because ultimately you said part of the long part of the name, I'm not going to pronounce because I can't do it, yeah. um, is that they didn't know what it was. So if, if your aunt's been giving you something to go off, yes. what have you got to lose at that point? And it's like, well, you don't know. So try this. It, it, it just makes sense. And I, I, I'm so happy that she was able to speak up and say so. As much as it might have sounded silly, going, oh, well, let's just try it. She said it. She spoke up and she said it. And that saved your life. Let me tell you the other thing, though, Matt. You know, the other thing it taught me is that there is no such thing as how can I put it like an authority over you because it's not I respect doctors and I respect consultants and all of those people and I know that they've done years of training and I and I have respect for them but I no longer see them as massive authority figures which I used to you know because I've I've had the two major hematologists experts in this country tell me that um I had to have my spleen out uh otherwise I would die and they were both and also that it couldn't be related to food by the way uh so they were both wrong and um I don't know that taught me a massive lesson for the rest of my life I probably you know the, the like we started when you when you introduced me I'm, I'm doing something with Lewis Football Club that goes against tradition and, you know, kind of, I suppose, is bold enough and a bit radical enough to kind of show a healthy disrespect for what's gone before and the knowledge that we have today. And I think this experience of of being really ill and of finding a way through it and finding a cure that that previously wasn't accepted like I told you they wrote it up in the BMJ and the Lancet because it was so unusual um taught me that nothing is written in stone there's always if you can look for it not always but there may be a way around something that no one before has found yet so don't give up and and have faith in in your own your own feelings and your own research and your own um 
observations. And that's important. That is very important. Um, thank you for sharing that. So looking back, that is no longer an L for you. What would you now say that you gained from that? What would you reflect on that and call it? Well, it, it's a different sort of L. It's a learning. I learned a lot from that. Um, I learned a lot about myself. I learned a lot about other people. And I learned a lot about the world you know, and and the way that we can defer authority when actually um, sometimes it's better to refer back to yourself. No, it's really good. So my question to you is, if you could go back in time at the height of despair when you was hit with that news, what would you tell yourself then that you know now? Um... What would I tell myself? It's a very good question. Uh, to enjoy life every day, to um, take your time, to have patience, um, and trust yourself. Nice. And last question I'm going to ask you, ask you about this before we go on to the next one, if you're right, is what was the actual turning point? For when you decided, well, not saying you decided because it doesn't work like that, but you're in a, you're not in a good place, like you're grieving. But what was it that suddenly just made you feel like, all right, cool, I, 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 I can, I'm feeling again. I've got the energy. I'm motivated to move on in this I, journey. I kept, I kept thinking it's not my time to die. I kept thinking I've got more to do in life. I kept thinking, I if if I can somehow keep my life, uh, you know, keep keep my future, um, I, I promise myself that I will use it well. You know, this this isn't a joke. You know, I was really serious with myself. I was like, um, there's, you know, I do. I wanted, you know, prior to that. I think I'd been equivocal about whether I wanted children or not, you know, like, and I just knew I wanted children. And I, you know, with this threat hanging over me. And I think it was the energy came from thinking this was wrong. This isn't supposed to happen. I, you know, if I can write my own script for life, this is not in it. And I, I want to, I want to be the script writer of my own life. Yeah, be the author. Yeah. No, that's that's fantastic. And I'm so happy for you that, you know, you're so many more chapters into your story. And that is just a more interesting chapter in that realm. But obviously you've created many more interesting uh, chapters going forward anyway. So I'm really happy to hear that. And thank you very much for sharing. Um, If you're happy to, we can go on to the next L. Yeah, absolutely. So the next L that you have so graciously decided you would like to share is not getting the second and third parts of a three-part series published in Hoff Pulse, which I'm sure is a Hoffington Pulse, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, gosh, because I was like, I'm thinking, hang on, what, what, what circles are you running in here? So, please go ahead, share. I, I think me and the listeners need to know a bit more about this. Okay. Um. Okay. So, all right. So, fast forward in my life a bit, and I'm back at um. Where am I? I've had two children. Um. I've stopped. Congratulations. Thank you very much. They're 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 old now. They're 23 and 19 now. So. Less of the old, right? Because I'm older than those ages. So if you're saying they're old, I deserve to be in a museum. <laughs> what about me? I'm a dinosaur. Anyway, Matt. Right. Um, <laughs> the uh, yeah, I had the children, and I stopped counselling, uh, and looked after the children for a few years, and then I. Well, I was actually, I was parent governor at their primary school, which took up a lot of my time. Don't ever be a parent governor on a board. Julie notice. <laughs> wow. Big time. Um, anyway, then I saw, I, what I always wanted to do was write, actually. I'd, I'd always wanted to write. And um, I mean, like articles and things like that, not, not so much fiction. And so I started to write a fashion blog. Uh, the reason being that my sister... And my mother, oh, here we go again, illness again. They both had breast cancer. And my sister, who's younger than me, she'd had a double mastectomy. And she decided not to have reconstruction. So she was looking for clothes that she could wear that would disguise the flat-chestedness. Okay, So we're talking like cowl necks and ruffle tops. And, and it was very interesting you know, and so we we started a blog together called Loose Deborah or Loose De Bra, right? So he didn't yeah, have to wear a bra. Yeah, with his, yeah. Freedom doesn't have a strap line. Was our strap line? Wow! Yeah, it was very. It was a lot of fun. I did it with my sister for. I would say we did that for about a year, and then she wanted to stop doing it because we basically we got a lot of people write in with their breast cancer stories, and um, and it was great, and it was you know it felt. It felt supportive, like we had a little community, but I hadn't had breast cancer. She had, and she felt that she wanted to move on from having had breast cancer and not keep replying to these uh, store these pe- people and kind of just not not dwell in that world anymore. So she was moving on. So I thought, okay, I'll carry on with the fashion blog, but I'll, you know, have to to be authentic. It has to be not about breast cancer anymore. So. I decided to, uh, oh yeah, so first of all, I thought, well, what can I do? You know, what can I write about that's interesting? And uh, I was getting emails about doing older modeling, because you know, I'd been a model before, doing modeling as an older woman, like classic, they call it classic modeling. And this this agency wrote to me and said, you know, we, if you pay us 700 pounds, you can learn to be a classic model. They didn't know me personally like that. I'd already been a model. And I thought, well, what are they offering for this? So I wrote them. I said, what is this about? They said, oh, you get a, you come to Soho. You get a lovely picture, a photographic picture from a top fashion photographer. We teach you how to walk. We teach you how to pose. We teach you how to behave at a casting. All, and you give you lunch, all for £700 in the heart of London's fashion district. I thought, what a con, right? What yeah. a con. It's what I thought. And I, I thought, what is this about? So I started to, to look into it. And I thought, okay, I'm going to go to one of these agencies. This isn't, the one I went to wasn't the one that was advertising this this day. The one I went to was called Mrs. Robinson. Okay. Right? 
and I said, uh, "Will you know? Could I could I work for you? What is it? You know what's going on with this new new classic modelling uh, industry?" And they said, uh, "Yeah, yeah. You know, you're tall, you're slim. Let's take a photo. Looks good. Um, we'll send you on a casting." So I went on a couple of castings for them. I didn't get the castings, uh, but then they, you know, nothing. They didn't send me on anymore. And I rang them up, and they said, "Well, you know." we think we've got someone that looks like you or something like that wow and I thought okay uh but I'd had a lot of fun because I'd had a lot of interesting conversations with them and I'd gone to this casting as an older model and met all these other older models and so I wrote about it I wrote about it for my blog and I called it Game of Crones oh clever yeah and I that is wordplay (laughs) I have a lot of fun Matt honestly with with the with writing and wordplay it's called it Game of Crones and I and it was funny and um, I put it on my Facebook and, and stuff like that, which is relevant. And I, w- I had already written a couple of things for Half Post, so I I wrote to Half Post with with Game of Crones, and it was quite long, so I, I thought it should be three parts. And they published part one, but then they didn't publish part two, and I was com- I didn't know why, and I I kind of at that, that point was setting my hopes on being a writer. And I, I wanted articles published, and I thought, oh, I, you know, I don't know, I don't know why, and they keep giving me another reason. Like the first they said it could be defamatory or something, and I said, well, it isn't because of this and that, and they agreed it wasn't. And then they said, well, um, you know, what was the other reason? We're not sure if it will appeal to people after. And I said, well, after part one, and you got a lot of response to that surely part two then I don't hear from them for a couple of weeks and then they're all very difficult so I went on holiday at that point to um to Ibiza with a friend and I was staying in her flat and she says the guy next door uh, has got a shaman coming to visit to do a medicinal ceremony uh apparently if you want anything to happen you go and take part and, you know, hopefully that thing will happen. And I thought, well, I've been writing tough posts. I was, I was doing it for my beaver. I was, I was writing. And so we went next door and the shaman didn't turn up. But the guy that lived next door was into kind of doing some kind of um, ceremony with us. We didn't have the medicinal stuff, but we kind of did some chanting and had tea and relaxed. And he was a really nice guy. And anyway, he just said to me, what is it that you know that you want and I said well I'm just gutted because I want to be a writer and they won't take this second part and you know I, I don't know where else to go he goes well what you know he says sometimes you know you can't just bang against a brick wall what is it that the universe is actually showing you that you can do what's in your life and I said well the other thing I'm doing is working with the football club which I was I just started so it must have been about 2018. I just started to work with USFC in 2017, and that just kept ballooning, right? That was escalating. Everybody wanted me there. It was like, go to this women's group, go to that women's group, write this, do that, get on the radio. I, I'd become a football pundit on the, on BBC Radio Sussex, right, once a week, wow. without having ever liked football before. It was just, it was kind of, I had this other crazy thing going on in my life. He said, well, you should be doing that. That's what the university is showing you. I thought, well, yeah, you know, maybe that's true. So I thought, okay, I'm going to stop banging against brick wall. I'm just going to say yes to everything football. So I did. 
and it's and that's how you know me, Matt. But anyway, the next the next thing, right? I'm at I'm in Brighton talking to the mumpreneurs about coming to watch football because that's the kind of thing I do. Right, I go to women's groups, and I was talking to the mumpreneurs of Brighton about why they should come in solidarity with the cause for equality, even if they didn't like football. Because I was saying, you think you don't like football, but you haven't been to watch Lewis FC women and you haven't been to a women's match. You've only been to a men's match. You don't really know what you're talking about. And when you watch women play football, it's so different to when you watch men play football, if you're a woman, because you can see representation. You know, you can see yourself in that. And, you know, like we say, if you can't see it, you can't be it. So I was trying to, like, sell this to them. Um, When I say sell it, I mean that very authentically. Like, I meant what I said. Um, And that was the way I would drum up markets. Anyway, I then got back in the car and I was parked in Asda in the Brighton Marina. I remember this so well. And someone had messaged me from my Facebook messaging saying, I've read your articles your blog about uh, the game of crones and i'm just going to into an interview to be the the editor of the observer magazine and i want to use your article as an example of how i would refresh the observer magazine and i said sure and then the next thing sure like she was someone i, I knew on my facebook and uh, then you know a day later she's like i got the job now I want your article and I want you on the cover. I said, wow, okay. And so um, my article was published in, well, actually she said, I want you to go to another model agency for context and get you know a bit more research done, write it again. And then you're in, you're on the cover. Ta-da, much better than half post, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, wow. that's my other L that I, you know, wasn't really an L. And I think that that's definitely a journey because you had so many stop-start moments in that because there was momentum. You was having fun, you know, spending time doing the the one with your sister and stuff like that. And it's like, oh, yeah, great. And it's like, okay, I'm moving on. Okay, cool. Let me rebrand it or repackage it and then yeah, do yeah. that. And then obviously the modeling agency, yeah, great. And then it's like, <clears throat> but... I think the the running theme with what was going on with you is the fact that you didn't stop the momentum. You kept it going. And like that individual said to you in the room next to you, you know, what is the universe calling you for? Like, what is what is laid out in front of you? It just seemed that all paths kind of led that way. And you kept saying yes to the things that were already, like the doors that are already ajar for yeah. you, waiting for you to push it open. And I think that was just really important so when i'm i'm a creative um to anyone that knows me they fully know i'm a creative whether it be editing designing all of that stuff like i project manage for the rebuild of my house like i've got issues because mm-hmm. i hyper focus on certain things that to other people don't mean anything but to me it's everything and i tell people especially this guy recently who i know was right was writing a book and i said enjoy the process more than the end product because you're always going to get someone to come back to you to say can you redo that can you edit this can you do that because guess what when you publish that book or whatever it is whether it be a piece of content or a podcast or whatever great you can sit in it for a day or week or whatever but you gotta go again 
and keep producing it. So you kind of got to love the process yeah. more than the actual result or whatever you've actually produced. Yeah. How did you keep yourself motivated every time you had so many stop start moments in terms of use catch it like the wordplay on the one with your sister I lo- I'm not, I can't overstate how great that was I love it <laughs> and then you know she kind of want to move away and you you know you uh, you understood why she wanted to move on and, and, and it's fine but then you're like okay I kind of got to start again and get my groove back yeah. and then oh let's look into this modeling stuff Oh, no. Okay. Right. Like on HuffPost. Oh, yeah. No. Okay. (laughs) How did you keep the momentum? How did you keep that flame lit when it felt like there were so many, so many opportunities for you to just disappear and just go, you know what? That's fine. I'm just going to do something else. Um, I want to say, because I found everything so funny. Like I found my life really funny. Like, so I was honestly mad. Modelling is so funny and the fashion industry just cracks me up. And I had to write about it and I had, I had to put it in a way that other people would have a laugh as well. Not, not to denigrate it, not to put it down, not for that reason. But I, I think we all have to laugh at ourselves. It's so important, isn't it, in life to, um, to, to, to keep like that, that cheerfulness, you know, that kind of humour there. Um, and I, there's there's usually a serious side. Like for me, it was a serious side. You shouldn't be conning women into giving you uh, £700 to teach them how to walk. Right? That That's a joke. Um, and I wanted to show that up. But more than that, I wanted to um, just just show the warmth and the humour in, in modelling. And in um, you know, in the way that the way that I saw it, really, I never saw it as it was for me. It was always a way to earn money, so it never was like a reflection on me or, or a rejection of how I looked or anything like that. Because I was, I was, you know, I knew enough about modelling to know that it's about um, you know the brand or the person or that you're with at the time. It's not a reflection of you in particular. So it wasn't that. I think I just kept thinking it was really funny. And I I just didn't really enjoy writing things and putting them across in a way that makes people smile. That 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 kept me going, I think. I think you have a very unique way of handling a situation. I love the fact you just detached yourself from taking it personal. Because um, for sure, I, I love um, Devil Wears Prada. Got no shame in admitting that. Watched it multiple times. And that's without my wife. So it's it's a good, solid movie. But it does kind of make you feel like the fashion industry and other shows and other TV things you've seen, that makes you feel like, fashion is everything like you that's the thing yeah if people if people reject you reject you it's not you they reject it's just it's you know they had a decision to make and unfortunately you didn't make a cut in this instance but people take it personally but you're telling me now nah it's a job it's whatever and it's like oh my gosh this is going against everything i thought i knew about the fashion industry no i mean like you you work in um well you work in a lot of things matt but one thing (laughs) is social media 
And I think being a model is a really valuable experience, or it used to be. Uh, uh, It could be a bit different now that there's Photoshop and there's all the influencers going on and all that. But then what you realised is that you there was you and there was an image so I was quite separate from my image so it wasn't that my image was false or anything like that it's just it wasn't me it was angled towards a brand it was you know even if you're on the catwalk a designer would say look sexy or look mysterious or look hard-nosed or something so you know you're you're conveying something you are not the thing and I think that's really really valuable lesson it it teaches you to detach and in fashion you you are a if you're a model you're definitely a bit detached because you know in one way you are a piece of meat so you're just there to hang the clothes on and you get you get manhandled as well like that so you you can easily see yourself like that uh so it's very important to you know, to, to retain yourself uh, whilst your image is being used. Uh, and it's very, that's very useful for, I find, for like things like Instagram now and uh, any anything, any platform that, that I, I just, I, it's a lesson I'd love a lot of young, young women to, to learn that they are not their Instagram profiles and that other people's Instagram accounts aren't them really they are curated they're you know they're brands but um yeah where where was I going with that yeah the fashion industry I've always found it really funny and but but bear in mind that at the same time as I was fashion modeling I was training to be a counselor so I was in a therapy group I had one-to-one counseling it was like I was very much in touch with myself and yet my other job where I was getting the money to be in touch with myself relied on me not being myself like being model so I had you know I I had a good anchoring in terms of the counseling and um I I I think I saw it maybe maybe in a a different way to to some people then maybe (laughs) I think that's super important I think because (laughs) I do social media I'm the worst person to watch a movie by the way because I'll tell you what's happening how things are shot I'll tell you when a cameraman's being shown in a reflection I'm bad and I don't even make that many um, videos anymore just haven't (laughs) got the time to but I can tell you that when someone's done certain videos I can tell you pretty much how they've done it they could have spent the last two three days setting it up the money they spent on it just for a potential 15 seconds of your attention you might have double tapped it by mistake because your thumb actually double tapped it and I hate the fact that people and I don't like using the word hate too much but I am passionate about this I hate the fact that people are going out the way to get in their bodies cut up to have it enhanced ribs removed and all sorts to look like an image that isn't real and that hurts me that breaks me because I'd like to know that young men young women or however they identify with you are beautiful stop you know my my words to you is I'm not telling you anything because it's not my place to tell you anything but I was teased as a young guy oh you got big lips oh you got a big nose ironically yeah it gave me a bit of a complex but I can't change that I wouldn't change it I got on with it because I, I don't see myself that much. I look in the mirror once every <laughs> once a day at least. And other than that, it's your problem, not mine. Um, but then now I see people getting fillers. I see people doing things and they feel like 
you hypocrite. So I, I wouldn't want, I, I personally don't want to, um, I can speak for my children now and I'll speak to anyone else. I don't want you to try to be like everyone else and lose what makes you unique to only then later on find it 10 years, 20 years, 30 years later and realise that is what you should have been holding on to. But I guess it's better late than never. But I love the fact that you're able to tell people right now that you have been in the model industry and because you was doing that plus the counselling helped you to have a balance to understand that, yeah, I'm a piece of meat, but I'm conveying what they asked me to and I did the best way I could. If it worked, it worked. If it didn't, it didn't. But that's not a reflection on me not being good enough. It's just I maybe wasn't what they were looking for. Mm. I, absolutely. I mean, it, it's it's a good lesson. I, I would say that um, it's so difficult, isn't it, when you know you don't feel you look the right way or or people tease you for for the way that you look um and it's often those things that make us different that are the things that you know where we where we really we really value that later in life and the things that would really make you know make us shine i i think that with, with me when i um i remember when when I first started modelling, so I was about, I was quite late, really, 21 or something when I was scouted. But I, you know, I'm five foot 11 and I'm really skinny and always have been, still am, right? Menopause, mm-hmm. still. When's it happen? <laughs> but um, I, I remember, you know, the fact that I was really tall and skinny was, was valuable, like they were paying me for it. And um, that, that felt good because previously I'd never felt, you know, I've never felt curvy enough or, you know, never felt like, um, attractive. And that, that was a, that was, that was a great thing for me. It really improved my confidence. But at the same time, as you, you know, as you've just said, I learned that it isn't personal. It's literally whether you fit that, um, particular, um, brief. Yeah. It's not about you. It's just about what they can sell with you. So. And, that, and that's, I think that's amazing. So if that situation then wasn't an L, what would you call it? Is it another lesson? Losing out to HuffPost turned out to be um, the best thing because, you know, the Observer cover was brilliant. Uh, so the lesson was what the guy next door in Ibiza told me. Um, don't keep banging your head against a brick wall. See what the universe is actually putting in front of you you know, because sometimes life shouldn't be hard, Matt, should it? You should just make it easy and take what's there and give it 100% and then see where that leads. Yeah, I guess goes to the phrase, you can't stop a wave, but you can learn to surf. Nice, very nice, yes. <laughs> I try, I try. Full of them, full of them, excellent. I try, yeah. and there's not even a book yeah. around me for me to go off, this is all off my head. Um, <laughs> It, it it just seems applicable and and yeah. i think it's so important for people to understand that you're not alone in how you're feeling the emotions the highs the lows that is life that is <laughs> that's something yeah. that we could all equally say whether you're born into wealth or poverty um into a broken home into a you know an established home you're gonna have highs you're gonna have lows some days you'll wake up and you're just not feeling like you're on it 
You're just, you're not grumpy. Like nothing's happened to you. You're just not there. Yeah. And other days, you're, you can feel everything. You're living, you're, you're in your skin, you're there, you're 100. And there's no rhyme or reason to it. And I think as soon as we can all appreciate that, from adolescence up until the day we're about to kick the bucket, we will have days where we will be either one or the other or somewhere in between. And it's okay to be like that. And it's okay for other people to feel like that and just know yeah, that we're trying to navigate life absolutely. the best way we can. Absolutely. Absolutely true. I very much believe in, in letting people just be as they are and not expecting people to be on top of the world all the time. Um, you know, obviously show compassion if, if they're, if they're low, but it's, you know, we're all subject to those things. I, I once worked for a, I was 18, I worked for um, a Japanese pharmaceutical company in Germany. I, w- I was in Germany for the year. And um, the the director there said to me, the only, I'll never forget it, the only place where, do you want to know the only place where people don't have problems? And I said, yeah, where's that? He said, the graveyard. I thought, yeah, that is true, actually. That was, because <laughs> I was at 18, that was like a revelation. I thought, mm, yeah, that makes sense. It's only when you're dead that you don't have problems. Because everyone that's alive has ups and downs, you know, we, we, we all do. Um, that, that's, that's, you know, that's the way, that's the way life is. Shit happens. <laughs> it really does. It really does. You know, and, and, you know, football is a great place to learn that as well. That's, a, this is another reason that we need equality in football and that your daughter needs to have as much access as your son, because what happens when you lose a match? But you not you don't just lose a match on your own. You lose it with a team, or you lose it with a whole crowd, and you can sympathise with each other, and you learn how to get up again and take and face, you know, put your game face on and go to the next match. And it's um, it that it's a brilliant lesson because that is that is what happens in your life. You're not going to win all the time. There's going to be lots of losses, and you need to. As you say, the process is important. You need to, you need to be able to expect those losses, and then manage them, and know that they're going to be tempered with wins. This isn't the end, you know. It's never the end. That is very true. Um, football's very much taught me about community. Um, yeah. The highs, the lows, the in betweens, the rivalries, the sympathy, the empathy. All of it. It's 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 just a beautiful thing, and I'd love for everyone to be able to experience that even if football's not their sport but it's just a community that that sports can bring in there and I think when we have more of a community it will be a better home life balance because then you'll talk to your neighbours more because you have Mm. that commonality that you can then build on and stuff it's it's just it's just beautiful Mm. I will ask you this um like I did previously um I think I think it's been quite clearly stated where the turning point was for you, what would you have said to your younger self prior to the penny dropping when you spoke to that person in Ibiza? But what would you have said to yourself when you felt a bit down about not getting the second and third part of your Hoff Post published? <laughs> um, I would have said it's, I suppose I would have said it's no reflection on you, you know? No reflection on you personally. It's just the way the cookie crumbles sometimes. Um, but keep going. And do you think you would have been in the right headspace to accept it that way? Uh, I think part of me would. And part of me will probably have got, you know, got a bit down on myself. 
still about that because I just do. You know, we're all human. You know, um, but then I would have, I would have, car- I did carry. I, you know, I, I carry on. I always carry on. Um, there's, there's so much good in the world, really, and so much good in people. But um, yeah, that, that's that's fine, and it's all right to feel what you're feeling. In hmm. life's all about that. So I'm gonna end it here, but I want to say. A massive thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule to join me to share all that you shared. And I, if no one else, I am truly honoured and grateful to have you share what you shared. Thank you, Matt. But I do know that definitely listeners are that going, oh my gosh, I need to listen to this again. She dropped some nuggets there. I like that. Let me just write that down. I think so. It was great to talk to you too. And thank you so much for the time that you've taken to reflect on, you know, certain incidences in my life that. I haven't thought about for a while and it's really nice to go over them and it's lovely to know someone else is interested. So thank you, Matt. No, definitely that. For this next few minutes, feel free to plug away as much as you want about yourself, where people can find you, what you've got going on, how they can own a portion of Lewis FC and support the Equality FC and all that. Well, I, you know, I think Lewis Football Club is amazing. Um, we're on a mission it is it is yeah I mean we as I said we use football for social change and um, basically the higher we can get in the leagues the more of a platform we've got for our messages and the more that we can prove concept we're already doing quite well with the women in the championship which is the second highest tier of English women's football our men almost got into the playoffs this season and they didn't quite so we're still non-league there in the Isthmian but um you know that they're, they're brilliant and I feel like we could we could make it next season I think I think it, there's a chance both first teams could be promoted next season actually which would be amazing Fantastic. yeah so if you want to join us it's 50 pounds a year to become an owner of Lewis FC and for that first of all you get an amazing warm feeling and secondly, mm-hmm. you get various discounts, you know, with our sponsors, Lyle and Scott, I think you get 25% off and Kappa. And then, you know, there are local discounts as well in this area. But um, yeah, I mean, it's a it's a brilliant community of owners. We have a town hall every few weeks uh, where people come from Australia, USA, Brazil, Chile, you know, and a lot of people from the UK. Uh and we and you can ask questions. Directors come, players come, various people in senior leadership positions come, give a little talk, ask what you like. It's a nice atmosphere. It's quite funny. Um, we have an owners app, so you got a voice. You can choose like between what kit we should have, and we have surveys and little funny competitions and stuff like that. And um, yeah, it's a it's a brilliant place if you feel that football should have more meaning than just what goes on on the pitch you can follow me i'm at karen dobray on instagram or at twitter uh but more importantly you can follow at lewis fc women and at lewis fc men which is on twitter and instagram and facebook and the reason we have them separate is because sometimes uh, if you just had lewis fc like many clubs have the women's team can get get missed in just the men's team uh, we also have on our, our website's great, by the way, so check us out there. 
but we have um, the men's team and the women's team. We don't have the first team and the women's team, which is what a lot of uh, clubs have. There are small ways, you know, to address inequality and they don't cost you anything if you look at people's websites and their handles. But, um, but yeah, follow us, become an owner, uh, check us out. We've got various campaigns on. Uh, get involved. Sounds absolutely amazing. And I encourage each and every one of you uh, listening to do that. So thank you once again for joining, for being so eloquent, for being so open and raw about things that not everyone's willing to share about their lives. I think pulling back the veil to show people that, yes, you're strong, but it's because you've had <laughs> obstacles to overcome will only let other people know that, oh my gosh, I thought people look at me like this because I'm going through difficult times. It's like, no, they're probably looking at you thinking, oh my gosh, you're amazing. You are strong. And that is what every L podcast is all about. It's just a shortened version of saying every L is not a loss. And I think it's down to perception. It depends on when you are, where you are in that process. And I, I just can't thank you enough. So thank you. Thank you to listeners for listening <laughs> to this episode. I, all I can ask you to do if possible, please, if you're listening to an Apple podcast, please just leave a review, rate it as well, share it with people so they get to hear what's going on here. Because I'm the whole idea is not for self-glorification. I don't care for that. I care for other people to feel included in society, that they're not on the outskirts because they're going through this or going through that or have experienced something. I want them to know that it's okay that you are, you're not feeling okay. It's okay that you haven't felt that you're okay. We're here together. We're all dealing with life the best we can. If you listen to Spotify, please follow so you get notified when I upload new podcast episodes. And um, rank it. You can find me on every L podcast on Twitter and Instagram. I'm mainly going to be on Instagram if I'm honest with you. But I'll be on Twitter if you need to drop it any on me. Um, always looking for guests, so feel free if you want to reach out to me. It's everylpod at gmail.com. But other than that, thank you very much for your time enjoy everything you'll do and i'll leave you this analogy based off the fact that it is a football themed guest i have on which is you learn more through defeat than you do in victory take care